Amen. Good morning. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Fourth of July weekend, we're just going to celebrate with some fireworks, and we're going to celebrate the Fourth of July of what year? 1776. Thank you, Carl. Rest of y'all catch up. We celebrate the 4th of July of 1776. It was the Declaration of Independence, right? Nothing changed that day. Like, other than we said that uh, we're going to do our own thing, right? Which we knew would incite an ongoing war with, with Britain. But it wasn't until what year that the war was actually concluded? 1783. Go to Carl with all your dates. 1783. Seven years later... Until the actual, our independence was actually won and then the things went in motion to form this country that we now live in and we get to celebrate almost 250 years later. The last couple of weeks, our family took a, a road trip. My son had a tournament, a baseball tournament up in, in New York and we were hitting some different spots along the way to break up the drive and saw some really cool, some historical places just in the history of our country. And coming back, we swung through, through D.C. And if you uh, want to know, if you go through D.C. in June, I can guarantee you of two things. It's going to be hot and you're going to walk a lot. And when you have three kids, when you get to all these historical locations and these things that are really awesome, they can, you kind of get looks like this. Cool. So as we're going through our day, we're seeing all these things, really neat, having fun. We get to later in the day and we're trying, we need air conditioning, right? So we get into the Smithsonian's museums, the Smithsonian Museum of American History. We walk in there, there's a lot of cool stuff in there. They also have really good air conditioning. So we get in there and we're in this museum and we're going, what's in here? What do we want to see? And we are walking through this, this, um, this exhibit and we see a flag. Uh, we see this. You know what this is? It's an American flag. Good job, guys. This is an American flag. It's the American flag that inspired a song you'll likely hear this weekend, the Star Spangled Banner. This is the flag that was flying in 1814 over a fort outside of Baltimore. Now, why was a flag flying in 1814 so significant? Because 1814 and 1812, we started the war of, uh, the war of 1812. Y'all got that one? It's a, even Carl couldn't beat you to that one. War of 1812, which we're again fighting the British. I completely forgot about this part of our history. In 1812, we're fighting the British again. It's, it's, and it's, not, it's still tense. Our nation is not that old. There's, there's nothing secure. There's nothing guaranteed that we would be sitting here in 2022 celebrating the 4th of July. There's a candle going nuts up here. Um, 1812, they were fighting the British so bad that the British marched into Washington, D.C., burned down the White House and the Capitol. Like, our nation is hanging in peril. We get to 1814 as this war is still raging on, and there's an assault by the British Navy on a fort outside of Baltimore, which was going to be basically the, the battle was going to hinge, the war was going to hinge on this battle, and that's where we get the Star Spangled Banner, where it's written by Francis Scott Key on a boat watching this. And what he's watching for is he's watching for the flag, this flag, that is waving over the fort. And as the darkness falls, the bombs are going off and the rockets are red glare. You know the song? <laughs> bombs bursting in air. Every, everyone stand and sing. Yeah. In the morning, right, he sees the flag. And he goes, if the flag's still there, we've won. The British pulled out, 
that's history, right? And it's one piece of the history of our country that is in a point when everything was really unknown. This morning, as we step into 1 Peter, I want to use this as an example. Because I want to point to two things that I believe point to not just a battle being won, but the war being won. Even though in our day-to-day lives, even though as we look around our country, even as we look around our world, it can be easy to think that Jesus is losing. Easy to think that all may be lost. I want us to leave the day with hope. Hope that the battle may still be raging, but the war has been won. If you have your Bibles, flip over to 1 Peter chapter 4. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter over the last couple weeks. We've done 1 Peter 1, and then 2, and then 3. And then one overarching theme throughout this book is suffering. But one overarching way in which Peter describes us that I think we have to remember, and I want to remind us of as we go back to the beginning of 1 Peter, how he addresses this letter to those reading the letter and really to us today. He uses two words to describe us that are imperative for us to understand the letter. And those two words are found at the beginning of 1 Peter, and they are this, elect exiles. He addresses his readers as elect exiles. He looks at us. We can read this letter saying this is, applies to us as elect exiles. What does that mean? Well, 22 times in the New Testament, the word elect is used. When Grudem says this, he says, always refers to persons chosen by God from a group of others who are not chosen and chosen for inclusion among God's people as recipients of great privilege and blessing. Now, when we read that and you go, I I don't know about you, but I zero in on privilege and blessing. Yes, this is what it means to be elect. It means to be blessed and privileged. But we have to move on to the second word, which is exile. We're not home yet. Therefore, you and I cannot expect to experience the full breadth of the privilege and blessing that we have been bestowed on as children of God because we're not home yet. So that whole idea frames this entire letter when Peter's saying you are elect, you are chosen, you are privileged, you are God's children, but you have to remember your exiles, you're not home yet. Therefore, the suffering that I'm going to talk about again and again and again through this letter must be framed in that understanding of your identity. And if you look at 1 Peter, you might notice as we've been going through this book, it's really hard to outline 1 Peter. Because Peter's like all over the place. There's passion, there's excitement, there's energy, there's urgency as he's bouncing all over the place in different ways, essentially to continue to hammer home the point that your suffering is not in vain and our God is still in control. So today we step into chapter four. We step into chapter four and Peter's gonna build off what he has just talked about in chapter three when he's talked again about Christ's suffering. He doesn't ever talk about our suffering alone in first Peter without being connected to Christ's suffering. Because Christ suffered, you and I can expect to suffering and suffering is therefore normal and should be expected. This morning, I wanna point to three things, three things that Peter urges us to not forget. Three things that Peter wants us to remember. In 1 Peter 4, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter gives us an encouragement here. He tells us to do something. You see it? He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Essentially, he's saying, arm your minds. 
Arm your minds with the same way of thinking as what? As Christ. Christ suffered and wants you to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The same mind of Christ. Paul in Philippians 2 talks about us wanting to have the same mind, mind of Christ. Several references to understanding that the way of Jesus' thinking, how he processed, how he responded, was an example for us to follow in our lives today. You see, when we think about arming, we think about a couple things. We think, one, it's active. You have to do it. And second, it's in preparation for what you expect to encounter. You don't arm yourself to go to a picnic, to go to dinner. You arm yourself because you're going into conflict. And in this way, Peter is saying, arm your minds because what is happening, one of the greatest battlefields you will encounter is not outside of you, it's actually inside of you. You see, we recognize this in a lot of different areas of our life, specifically when it comes to athletics. Part of our trip uh, in being up in New York, we got to visit the Cooperstown Hall of Fame, the MLB Hall of Fame. And as you walk through there, any Hall of Fame, any sport that you love, what you recognize is that at baseball especially, Hall of Famers succeed, actually Hall of Famers fail about 70% of the time. What we recognize is that there is an incredible need for the right mindset in order to be successful at any sport. Because you can know exactly what you are going to do. You can know exactly what you expect to do. You can know exactly what the play is. You can know exactly what you're trying to do. But the reality is it's never going to go as planned. What we recognize when we see the greats of any sport is that there was a physical ability to perform. But there was also a mental preparation and strength that allowed them to perform at the highest level in the most meaningful moments. Here, Peter is saying, hey, I want you to arm your mind because the mental focus, having an active mindset, seeking to have the mind of Christ, is one of the most important things you can do if you want to live the Christian life. Yes, there's a whole lot of things that you can do, but I want to start with how you think. And out of that will flow what you do, which we'll see him get to in just a moment. Peter was with Jesus for three years. He was watching, he was observing, he was learning what Jesus was doing, and he got to see how Jesus was thinking how his mental mindset allowed him to do exactly what he called his followers to do. We see this because in 1 Peter 2, jumping back two chapters, he explains this exactly. 1 Peter 2, verse 21, it says, for this, To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. What example did Jesus leave? So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Here's his example. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter points to the active mindset of Christ. And then he says, hey, in chapter four, I want you to arm yourself with that same mindset, that same mindset that's gonna allow you to react the same way Jesus did when he was treated wrongly. 
You've heard it said that our actions speak louder than words. You've also heard it said that our reactions speak louder than our actions. See, I can act and I can do things, right? I can plan to to be a certain way, to respond a certain way. But what is most telling about my heart and my mind is what happens when the unexpected happens and you get to see the reaction that I have. Peter is saying the example that Christ set us was a mindset that was anchored in the truth of who God was that made it impossible, eliminated the need for Jesus to have to react in such a way to defend or to right every wrong. Part of his mindset was trusting in a God who saw everything that would happen to him and to us and trusting that God, which we'll get to in just a second. Do you think life went the way Peter expected? Think back, Peter's life. He's living as just an ordinary fisherman. He meets Jesus. He gets asked to follow Jesus. He becomes one of Jesus' closest disciples. And you can see how the pieces are coming together. He's the Messiah. He's he's the one we've been waiting on. I know how this story ends. I'm going to rule with him, beside him. Life is going to be a breeze. And life is anything but a breeze for Peter. Following Jesus and then after Jesus' death and resurrection. Peter experienced great heartache, great loss, and great sacrifice. Ultimately, his life was laid down. I don't think that's what Peter had in mind when he dreamed and heard of the Messiah coming. So then why do you think that Peter in this book talks about the reality of suffering but he doesn't ever talk about avoiding suffering. Talks about the reality of it. He says we should expect it. We should not be surprised with it. But he never talks about how to avoid it. He talks about what to do in response to it. How our response should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You see, there's two types of suffering There's suffering due to following Jesus, suffering in the name of Jesus. And then there's suffering that you and I experience simply because we're living in a fallen world. There is sin in our world that leads to heartache, loss, and pain all around us. Neither one, there's no real difference in how each one feels. Suffering is still suffering, but we need to recognize that there are two reasons for suffering. And what Paul points to here is he says, hey, I want you to arm yourself with the right mindset, the mindset of Christ, so that when you suffer, you are able to react in such a way that honors God and leaves the outcome to him. And when you do this, when you have this mindset, the reason this mindset is so important is because you're going to have to choose between two paths. The two paths we see in the second half of verse 2. It says, So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Those who suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin, as we just saw, highlighted there. Ceased from sin doesn't mean we don't sin anymore. Saying, hey, if you're going to choose to suffer for the name of Christ, it means you have moved from doing, pursuing your own way of living to pursuing Christ's way of living. And the only reason you you do that is if you recognize what he had done for you and experienced life in his name. There's no You've now no longer sinned. It's that sin no longer has power over you. And as a result of that, the active mindset we have leads us to make one of two choices. To live for human passions or to live for the will of God. 
You see, oftentimes when we think about the will of God, I think Christians and the church do a really good job of making this really, really complicated and really, really mysterious. Think about if I can just figure out the secret formula, understand what God's will is, then I'll be happy to walk in it. But the reality is, for me at least, my pursuit of God's will oftentimes is selfishly motivated. I want God's will because my assumption is if I'm walking in God's will, it will go better for me. Define better. Because Peter is not experiencing the better that you and I are probably looking for based on what he has experienced in his life. Here, he's putting two paths in front of us, human passions, doing whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, doing whatever feels good, feels right, and what seems right, versus living in submission to God's way and walking in God's will. You see, the will of God can become complicated when we're seeking something that's more comfortable, something that's easier, something that's more blessing-oriented. See, 11 years ago, today actually, 11 years ago today, I preached my first sermon here at Sanctuary. I didn't preach it right here. I preached it up there because that's how we were doing church back then. <laughs> Before we moved it around. And in that season, I had become, was, Danielle and I had been around Sanctuary from the beginning and Craig came to me and said, hey, what would you think about coming on staff? It's a few months in, helping turn into working here. And then I got to, to preach this, this sermon, and Craig goes, yeah, you can teach whatever you want. And at that time, I'd been reading a book called, by Francis Chan called For, um, Forgotten God. And in that book, there is a chapter entitled Forget About God's Will for Your Life. I remember seeing that and going, wait, what? Like growing up in church, like that's the whole point of our life, right? Is to understand God's will, to do God's will, to figure out God's will with your life, to honor God with your life. But Francis Chan's argument in that chapter that was so challenging to me was this. Oftentimes we want to look for God's will for our life and we're paralyzed. Figure, trying to figure out what the master plan is. And the result is the enemy is using something God has intended for good to paralyze us and keep us from walking in his truth. You see, if I want the, God's will for my life, what oftentimes happens is I don't do anything until I figure out the whole path. And the result is I will be pursuing God's will tomorrow, but today I'm going to stand right here and wait. And think about it. Think about the tactic that the enemy can leverage there. Hey, don't do anything until you figure out exactly what God wants you to do. And then today turns into tomorrow, it turns into the next day, turns into weeks, turns into months. And you and I are paralyzed trying to figure out what God's will is. And in the absence of understanding what God's will is, we move nowhere. We do nothing. Forget about God's will for your life and walk in God's will for today. What is the next thing that God is asking you to do? And what's crazy is Paul or Peter talks about God's will three different times in 1 Peter. And I'll show you these, these verses. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 317, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. 419, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What action does Peter tie to God's will in every single one of those verses? Do you see it? Doing good. Doing good. 
What is God's will for your life? For you and I to be found faithful in doing good. I don't know about you, but that is incredibly freeing. That is incredibly invigorating of going, hey, when you wake up each morning, when I wake up each morning, God, what is the good that you have in store for me that you want me to walk in? What, what opportunities, what conversations, what, what can I do today that isn't earth-shattering, mind-altering, but it's simply good. Because I would guess that over a lifetime of waking up with a posture of seeking to do God's will by simply doing good, we will look back and see an incredible narrative of how God has been at work in and through our lives. God will probably accomplish some crazy things if we commit to simply doing good. So Peter challenges us, don't forget to arm your minds because in the midst of suffering, recognizing that God is at work takes an incredible mental focus. At the same time, it also helps us to identify the paths in front of us of human passions and God's will and allows us to choose to do good in walking out his will on a daily basis. The second thing I want to challenge, point to that Peter encourages us to not forget. He says, don't forget the just judge. This life doesn't seem fair. You may be doing the right things. You may be saying the right things. You may be honoring God. You may be doing good. You may be walking in God's will. You may be trusting him. And it just seems like nothing seems to work out right. Those who do wrong seems to get away with it. Those who do right seem to be punished. So he says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Sum all that up. Change whatever name, whatever words you want to put in there. Essentially, with a common theme across all of those things, activities that Peter describes, is human passions. It's, I'm just doing whatever I want to do. You don't see anybody going after lawless idolatry, drinking parties, orgies, drunkenness, passions, or sensuality because they feel obligated to do it. Right? Human passions, as extreme or as seemingly insignificant, is in a described, really rolled up into saying, I'm going to live life my way. So with respect to this, when people are living life their way, wanting to do whatever they want to do, however they want to do it, they are surprised when you don't join them. In the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, today, we look at the headlines, we watch the news, we look around in our culture and it's easy to feel like the sky is falling. It's easy to feel like, man, the world is lost. And some will look around and go, man, our country has lost its way. But I would encourage you, when you look at verses 3 and 4, is it really that different? Like humans haven't changed. Culture hasn't changed. Names change. Issues change. But the reality is the tension was and will continue to be living however I want to live or living God's way, right? And then and now when somebody stands up and goes, no, that's not right. That's not best. Those who want that and think that that is best have been and will malign you. Think about it. Look around at our culture today. You need to love everybody 
And you should not tell anybody that what they are doing or how they are living is wrong. There is no absolutes. You just do life however you want to do life and stay separated. But as soon as somebody holds this up and says, wait a second, that's not congruent with what I find here. The response, same as it was 2,000 years ago. They malign you. How dare you say there's only one right way? How dare you say that I'm wrong? How dare you believe that you are right? In this, there's such hope and encouragement, guys. While so much has changed, so much hasn't changed. The people that Peter is writing to are facing different things, but in essence, the same struggles and challenges that you and I face today. When we choose to associate with Jesus Christ and when we say that there is a God and a way and a designer to life, the result has been and will be that you will be maligned. But what's the encouragement? Verse 5, but they will give an account to him as ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. Peter's saying, remember, there's a judge. If you remember back to chapter two, we read earlier, Jesus entrusted himself to one who judges justly. It's the same thing Peter's reminding us here. Hey, there's nothing that's going to get, no one's gonna get away with anything. So we choose to trust a just just judge and guys for those who malign believers those who persecute believers there's one of two outcomes through the persecution they will see how Christians handle that suffering and they will be drawn to Jesus and will therefore glorify God by becoming believers because of the witness that they see in front of them or they continue to deny Christ and they will be judged eternally. You and I can give up the weight of needing to right wrongs when we entrust ourselves to a just judge and when we remember that there is a just judge, which is why arming our minds, having an active mindset, is connected to remembering that there's a just judge. So then Peter goes, goes on. He says, don't forget to arm your minds. Don't forget the just judge. And thirdly, he says, don't forget to check the clock. 4.7 says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. If you watch a, any game, um, the end of the game is a little different than the beginning of the game, isn't it? If you're watching a basketball game and there's a certain number of seconds left on the clock, everyone's watching the clock and they're watching the game. They're knowing the clock will dictate how the game is played. I can't sit down in the middle of summer and watch a Braves game from start to finish on TV. But when we get to October, this last October, man, I was hanging on every single pitch. Why? Because the end was near. Everything was more significant. Everything seemed to mean more. Peter's saying the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-controlled and sober-minded. 
for the sake of your prayers. You want to be alert. You want to have an active mindset. You want to be aware of what's happening around you so you can, for the sake of your prayers. Why? Because prayer is our lifeline to God that will help us with our active mindset, trusting him as our judge, and helping us choose the right way to live. Now, I have to smile when I read this verse because can you remember a time when Peter was asked to pray and he maybe wasn't so self-controlled or sober-minded? What about the garden? He didn't know that the end of all things, end of his time with Jesus was that close. But in that moment, Jesus says, hey, Peter, would you keep watching, pray? And he falls asleep. And I've got to believe a couple years later, he remembers that time and he's going, hey, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be alert, be aware of what is going on because the clock is ticking. End of all things is near. Now, in these days, people, you look around and, and a bunch of people wring their hands and are going, the end is coming, the end is coming, the end is coming. And I can, I can assure you quite confidently that we are closer to the return of Jesus today than we have ever been before. And it will be true tomorrow too. I don't know when and I don't know how. But what I know is that he's coming. And in the New Testament, there's two ages. There's the age before Jesus and then there's the age after Jesus. We're in the last ages because Jesus has come and we are awaiting his return. And so in the midst of awaiting his return, because the end of all things is near, we need to be found faithful in doing the good that is the will of God, as Peter has challenged us. See, a lot of the three things that Peter has encouraged us not to forget, we arm our minds, we tr trust a just judge, and we check the ticking clock. This is what I love. He gives us some dramatically simple direction. At the end of a game, the end of a basketball game, if your team's down one and they inbound the ball with 10 seconds left, they're going to do exactly what they've been doing the whole game. They're going to try to score, right? Nothing changes, even though everything seems more significant. That shot is no different than all of the other shots. And here, in light of all things, the end of all things being near, Peter encourages us to go back to the basics and do something revolutionarily simple. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's just gone through this whole thing about suffering, having the mind of Christ, a just judge, and the end of all things is near. And so what does he encourage us to do? Love one another. Show hospitality to one another. Serve one another with the gifts that God 
has given you. We just talked about the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8 in the spring. Here, he talks, basically breaks down these gifts into two categories, speaking and serving. He encourages everyone to love, everyone to show hospitality, and he encourages those who have gifts of speaking to speak and those who have gifts of serving to serve. I love the simplicity of it, right? Hey, if you're good at serving, serve. If you're good at speaking, speak. Use the gifts that God's given you. Guess what? It's not your job to win the war. It's your job to be obedient in who God has called you to be. And the greatest way to experience and walk in the will of God is to be found faithful in doing good. What does doing good look like? Loving others, showing hospitality, speaking and serving. Just be you. You might go, well, that's not enough. Well, what's the alternative? In the face of suffering, this is not like they're on vacation and he's going, hey, by the way, why don't you guys have a meal together? Why don't you all love each other? Saying, hey, in the face of suffering, be found faithful and doing good. What does doing good look like? It's right here. And it's surprisingly simple. For us as a faith family, I think there's a call here. There's a challenge here. There's an invitation here. See, suffering and the world we live in and the opposition we face, a culture that seems to be running in the opposite direction, Peter knows nothing of living in that world separate from a community of believers. He knows nothing of trying to change the world out there without operating in a Christ-like manner in here, which means serving one another, loving one another here, using your gifts here, So my challenge would simply be this. What relationships are you investing in? Who are you loving? Who are you showing hospitality to and serving? How does God want to use your gifts in the life of our faith family to love others? You might go, well, my gift is so simple. It's just not that significant. Well, yes, that's exactly what Peter's calling us to. It's just doing good. And so as we come through, through the summer, Troy already told us we're halfway through summer. As you're thinking through the fall, I would just encourage you to look around and go, God, how would you want to use me to bless your church? And I guarantee you there's a place where God wants to use your gifts here because he has you here. And he's gifted you with those gifts for this place. Peter ends chapter 4, really with a declaration, comes back to suffering. In verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for a judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? As you read this section, we don't have time to, to dig into all of it, but I just want to point to the emphasis on glory. The goal of suffering is God's glory. 
We see it again and again here. We see it throughout this letter. It is not in vain. It is for God's glory. It requires an active mindset where we are not surprised when we experience trials and tribulations and hardships and pain for the name of Christ and as a result of living in a sinful world. But how we respond, or how we react in the midst of those situations is designed to glorify our God when people see our trust and devotion to a God that oftentimes, if we're honest, doesn't make sense. Which is why Peter ends chapter 4 with a beautiful capstone verse that I want to end us, leave us with this morning. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So what do you do? Where do we go with this? We entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Because that's encouraging. I'll be honest, that's really frustrating. I want more. I don't want to have to trust you, God. I don't want to trust my soul to you while I'm experiencing suffering and hardships and challenges and difficulties. I want you to fix it. I want you to eliminate it. I want you to change it. Then I don't have to trust you. I'll just praise you. But Peter ends here, he says, entrusting your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So this brings back the age-old question. If God loves us, why does he allow us to suffer? Why does he allow us to experience pain and heartache and loss, persecution? Why doesn't he just fix it? Tim Keller describes it this way so eloquently when he writes, if we ask, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross, we still do not know what the answer is. However, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. We don't always have the answers to pain and suffering for the name of Christ or as a result of a sinful world, but we do know the suffering and pain you and I experience is not because he doesn't love us. So as we end, I want to encourage you to think about two things, two symbols. And much like we started with the American flag that was visible through the smoke, and it signaled that the battle had been won, that there was hope, that the, the American cause was still alive, Today, I want to point you to the cross and the empty grave for us as believers. And for this reason, when you look at the cross, it communicates that our God loves you and I so much that he would go to any length to have a relationship with you. And the grave on the other side of the cross demonstrates his incredible power that can accomplish anything, even conquering death. So when you and I face hardships and trials, and we're left in wondering, does God love me? We look at the cross. When we are asking the question, can God, why does God not do anything? The answer is always, it's not because he's unable, because he knows he's able to do anything. And somewhere between his love for us and his incredible power that can do anything, we rest. And that is the place where we entrust our souls to a faithful creator. See, 11 years ago, when I preached that sermon about Abraham and about trusting God's will 
and walking obediently and trusting him one step at a time, I had no idea that the next day, man, I would be living that out in a way that I couldn't imagine. See, July 4th, 2011, I was awoken, awakened by a phone call from my brother. We'd been on a bike ride with my dad, and my dad got hit by a car. And he goes, we're on the way to the hospital, but it doesn't look good. I can remember racing over to North Fulton, getting there, and it being too late. Guys, this all sounds so good until you experience something in life that makes absolutely no sense. And looking around this room, there are those of you that have experienced deep, deep loss and hurt and pain. That there is no reason for it. We can't explain it. We can't understand it. That is why we have the book of 1 Peter. Whether it's suffering for the name of Christ or suffering as a result of living in a fallen world where life doesn't make sense, Peter is pointing us to the cross that says he loves you and he's pointing us to the empty grave that says he's powerful to do anything. And then he's encouraging us, will you entrust your soul to a faithful creator? Guys, if a flag waving in the smoke-filled air can become a declaration for a country that lasts 250 years. Guys, a cross and a grave is the anthem of a people that will be singing the praises of a risen king for all of eternity. And right now, wherever you find yourself, I want to simply encourage you with this. Suffering is real. Suffering is painful. Suffering is debilitating at times. But our God is there. Our God is faithful and our God is good. And our God is inviting you and me to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. Let's pray.